When you talk about cancer risk, things like breast cancer, often genetics, family history, your race, all those things can play a role. But what kind of role do they play? And how do we learn about these things? Where do we get this information? Hi, I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, and welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. My guest today is Dr. Maureen Murphy. She is a scientist, a scientist who actually has been working with clinicians, healthcare professionals, and others doing research and talking about breast cancer risk in women and also looking at a certain group in particular, African and African-American descent women who may be at greater risk for certain issues. First of all, I want to welcome you to the program, Dr. Murphy. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, Brian. Now, I know you work with the world-famous Wistar Institute. You've, you've been doing research. Tell me a little bit about the research and, and what just got you interested uh, well, first and foremost, I love being at Wistar. It's 32 of the smartest scientists I've ever interacted with. I work on a protein called P53. I've worked on P53 for 20 years, and it is the most famous of all tumor genes. P53 is the cell's best cancer killer. And what I've been working on probably for the last 15 years, Brian, is the fact that not everyone's version of P53 is the same. Different ethnic groups have different variants of this protein. And what really made me obsessed is that that's very unusual. For other cancer genes, cancer-protecting genes and cancer-causing genes, everybody's variants are the same. Everybody's genes are the same. But for P53, it's different. Why do you think that's the case? That's also a very good question. This protein is fascinating. It probably didn't start out as a protein whose role it was was to protect from cancer, right? If you think about it, people millions of years ago didn't live until their 70s. They lived until they were 30, and then they were eaten by whatever, a dinosaur or panther or whatever. So P53 actually started out probably to regulate metabolism and regulate DNA repair. And these are two things that we now know are intimately related to cancer. So I actually have a hypothesis that the different variants of P53 actually regulate our response to our diet, so something that is selectable. For example, we know one variant allows people to acquire more fat when they live at higher climates, which is something that's a selection pressure. We also know that that same variant allows people to survive better if there's a time of famine. So those are selectable pressures, environmental selections, and it probably then evolved to become the world's best cancer killer, and that's when we started living longer, and these different variants now started having an impact on our cancer risk. You know, when you first started in your career, and you've obviously been doing this for a couple decades at Wistar, did you ever think that you would get to this point? I mean, when you imagined and you thought about science. I was just talking to somebody about how like computers have become so important in our lives. And you know, when I was in college, I mean, computers were these huge. <laughs> they took up an entire floor of a building, it seemed. And now everybody has their personal computers. I never assumed or even dreamed that they would have that kind of a role. Did you ever think you know, the type of research you are doing now would be possible? I certainly never conceived it, although there's a famous scientist named Kurt Harris. He's at the National Cancer Institute. And he once said, Whatever direction cancer research turns, P53 comes into view. And he said that 20 years ago, and now it's more true than ever. This little protein regulates so much in the cell. And actually, that's what's thrilling about it. We've been working on it for 30 years and are still discovering 
mysteries about this protein, how it is a, a suppressor of tumor development, how it first senses that a cell has become precancerous, how it then kills that precancerous cell, and then how mutations in p53 and what I study, variations, can actually predispose to cancer. So something that's designed to help you, I guess, can go kind of astray? Or is it just a change, a variant? I mean, it is true that there are families in the world that have a disorder called Lee-Fraumeni syndrome, and they have inactivating mutations in P53. I'm not sure there's a selection for that, but there's definitely a selection against it. These people have multiple tumors of the brain, breast, bone, and adrenal cortex by the age of 20. So there are definitely families out there who cancer stalks them multiple generations, and they have mutations in P53. What we study are variations, so we don't call them mutations because they influence your cancer risk, but they don't necessarily give you a 100% risk of getting cancer. So they're influencers, so to speak, they I guess. They influence cancer risk. They influence how efficacious chemo and radiation therapy is. Now, when you talk about TP53, when you talk about that, what exactly is that? What's the definition of TP53? Because you say it's the most frequently mutated gene in human cancer. Yeah, so that's just the denomination of the name of the gene. The gene name was tumor protein P53, and so the gene is called TP53, and the protein is called P53. P53 is for, okay, sure. okay. And, and the P53 is actually the tumor suppressor in, in most cases in cell and genetic mutations and actually can occur and try to help in the battle against cancer. The gene then encodes the protein. So both of these guys, the gene and the protein, would have the genetic variation in them. But it's the gene that you inherit. So it's this variation that, you, that is inherited that influences your inherited cancer risk. Now, where do you see this coming across in, in different clinical settings? Already it probably has, but where do you see it display itself? For a lot of family doctors, primary care doctors who are listening, where would they come across this or see the impact? So my research in particular really focuses on African Americans. So the uh, coding region or, or the, the P53 variants that I study are specific to the African American and African populations. And I've become obsessed with the possibility that these variants explain what's known for years, that African Americans have the highest cancer burden of any ethnic group and have the poorest prognosis for most cancers. It's very well known African American women have much higher incidence of triple negative breast cancer. It's called triple negative because it doesn't have any of the markers that we have drugs for. It's literally extremely difficult to treat and no one really knows why. It's clear that there must be a genetic predisposition, but no one knows why. African-American men have much poorer prognosis for prostate cancer. They get the castration-resistant prostate cancer, and no one knows why. So I've really become obsessed with the possibility that it's these variants that we found in the most important tumor suppressor in your body that are causing some of these increased risks. You're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. My guest is Dr. Maureen Murphy. She is a scientist at the Wistar Institute. And it is fascinating because what you're really saying is if, if you can put this together and figure this out, then we obviously can turn to other forms of treatment and ways to be aggressive in our treatment and try to help those at greater risk. So, for instance, if African-Americans, which they are, um, seem to have these more aggressive forms for breast cancer or prostate cancer, you can make a real difference with this research. That's absolutely the case. It's, it's one thing where we would love to see 
more screening for African-American populations with familial cancers for this P53 variant. We call it S47. We would love to see screening, in, more screening in African-Americans. But where we're turning our research now, Brian, is so-called precision medicine. We know that P53 really controls the efficacy, the success of chemo and radiation therapy. It basically, chemo and radiation therapy work through P53. And we know that cells that have this African-American variant don't respond as well. So what we're doing now, Brian, is doing screens in the lab to find drugs that kill these S47 cells better. So we would love to be able to offer better choices to clinicians who have patients who are African-American who then consent to screening and see that they have this variant so that we can offer them a choice for drugs. We have very exciting data that we have a new class of drugs that actually can kill these cells better than the cells with the other or Caucasian-American variant P53. We're really encouraged. How is funding for work like this? I know there's a lot of concerns in the scientific community about funds going away and issues. How, how is funding? Well, you know, every scientist will tell you funding is hard. And it's, it's not that we don't all have good ideas. We do. It's that there's not enough funding. And I think that what's, what most people don't realize is what happens when a scientist doesn't get funded? What happens when they get a score on their grant that puts them in the 11th percentile, which remember now would not be funded? Only the top 9 or 10% of grants are funded. So if I get an 11th percentile score on my grant, which of course means it's a wonderful score anywhere else, but what that means is that people lose their jobs. People who have signed on with me to do their postdoctoral work or their graduate work, I now no longer have funding for them. So you know, I, I don't think people realize the economic ramifications of the tight funding climate. It, it makes continuity difficult. It makes everything difficult, to be honest with you. And, and things have been tough for a long time. We had just started getting to a point where it seemed like it was getting better. Uh, and now we are where we are. And, and obviously, it has an impact not just for you doing the critical research, but as you mentioned, those people who are working with you are in different levels of training where they're, they're our future, too. Right, exactly. What do you see as the future of this? Is it optimistic? This is kind of like, like a snowball going down a hill, building up momentum in snow. Is it? Are we learning more and more and more? Is it getting better as far as what we're learning and how we can deal with it? I think it's an absolutely thrilling time in cancer research right now. I find my own research thrilling. I find the research of my colleagues thrilling. I, I really feel like... Most people have very exciting findings, very exciting drugs. Maybe that makes it the worst time for there to be a funding crunch because I feel like, especially for cancer research, we're almost turning the corner and really getting a handle on how do we treat this person's tumor versus this person's tumor. And I think it's going to explode in the next decade of this precision medicine or personalized medicine. So... Um, it's actually a thrilling time. It's a little bit distressing to talk about funding crunches and, and possible cuts to the NIH budget, but it's actually an absolutely thrilling time scientifically to be involved in research. Has you know the development and the knowledge uh, of the genetic code and, and obviously all the work that was done at NIH, is, is this more a reflection of what they were talking about 
in let's say 2000, they're now starting to see these things happen. And has it happened as quickly as you thought? Is it is it building at a rapid pace? I really think it is. I really think it's a combination of new technologies to determine exactly what's wrong, what genes are mutated in each person's tumor, combined with new information for how to target each of those particular mutations. So um, I, I really do think things are, are really at a, at a crest and continuing at a rapid and impressive pace. What do you see different in the doctor's office of the future? I'm looking at precision medicine and these things. What do you see as being maybe in the next decade, the big differences we're going to have in caring for patients from your perspective based on the research you're doing and and knowledge of other similar type projects? I think I see individuals and Americans no longer being afraid of genetics and fearful of what their genome might have in it, but embracing that information. I see people carrying data cards where they know which genes in their DNA might predispose them for different disorders so that they can have enhanced screening for those disorders. Enhanced screening saves people's lives. So knowing that you are a BRCA, um, have a BRCA mutation or a P53 mutation can really help people, can really help save lives. So I see a future where people not only know what genes are mutated in their tumor, but what is their own genetic predisposition towards different diseases so that they can better prevent and screen for those. One last question. What do you see as the ideal uh, next five years for you? What would you like to see happen with your research? I think about it a lot. I have decided I have two areas of research in my laboratory, and both I'm equally in love with. One is genetic variants and how they contribute to uh, cancers in African Americans. I find this area historically understudied and really ripe for an explosion. And the other is I as well have drugs that my group has developed that can target tumors. We work with the world-famous melanoma group at the Wistar Institute, and we're targeting melanoma using our inhibitors. So we try and do research that can help people today, and that's the melanoma and drug work, and research that can help people maybe today, but also maybe the next generation, and that's our P53 and genetic variation work. Well, Dr. Maureen Murphy, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on Primary Care today. You're, obviously, your work is commendable, but more importantly, for us, for our purposes today, I think you really explained it well and gave us an understanding of, of what you're trying to do and, and the great work you have done. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. If you missed part of this discussion, you can visit reachmd.com slash today. You can download the podcast. You can learn more on the series. Thank you for listening.